0: After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons, and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, and her sins are piled up to her heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow, I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning and famine, she will be consumed by fire for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship The sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets. For God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we once again spend time in your word, a word that is sometimes very hard to take. We pray, Lord, that we will receive it with joy. We will receive it with your grace. We will receive it in conviction and in love. Thank you, Lord, for your presence, your Holy Spirit's presence here in our midst. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I heard the story of a big burly man who visited the pastor's house and he asked to see the minister's wife, who was well known for her charity in the community. Madam, he said in a broken voice, I wish to draw your attention to the terrible pride of a poor family in this district. The father is dead, the mother is too ill to work, and the nine children are starving. They're about to be turned into the cold, empty streets unless someone pays their rent, which is about $400. How terrible, exclaimed the preacher's wife. May I ask who you are? The sympathetic visitor Applied his handkerchief to his eyes. Well, I'm their landlord, he sobbed. Yeah, yeah all you are groaning, you'll be telling that soon. Let me, uh, let me get, begin this morning by saying something that will surprise no one who knows me. And that is that I'm not an economist. But I have uh, a lot, read a lot in the field. And I am a proud capitalist for the main reason, much like the fathers, uh, the founding fathers of this nation, that a true capitalist system, undergirded, and let me emphasize this, undergirded by a strong Christian ethos, provides the most economic opportunities for the most people. Sadly, I think today we only have remnants of this because of the decline and likely eventual collapse of that Christian ethos that undergirded the economics of this country. The reason I make this pronouncement is because this chapter we'll be looking at here in some ways represents what our country and a large part of the Western world has become today. Not maybe what it was uh, back in decades past, but it is the values that are often promulgated today. This chapter is usually described as a lament by scholars. It is weeping in other words, but it also has major elements of a curse. So uh, join with me here as we take a closer look at this passage. It begins with fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. We saw the same thing last week in chapter 14, verse 8. The nation of Babylon, by the way, hadn't existed for many hundreds of years, but it became symbolic for the greed and avarice of powerful nations, which in John's day was embodied in Rome. See, both Babylon and Rome are often symbolically pictured, and it's pictured here as well, as a prostitute. And now in this chapter, John pictures the clients of this prostitute. And what are they pictured as doing here, as we're reading along? Well, they are mourning. The clients are the merchants and the leaders of other countries. They mourn over fallen Babylon. They mourn over her fall because she has made them wealthy and powerful. We see this in verses 3, 7, and 9. And what is repeatedly emphasized is that Babylon, Rome's overriding interest was her luxury. See, Rome has exploited others for her luxuries. And this is, by the way, an explicit echo in this passage from Jeremiah 51, verse 7, where it reads, Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore they have now gone mad. See, literal Babylon, the nation in history, had once been used by God as an agent in judging the Israelites for their sins. But now, now we see it it's Babylon's time to be judged by God. Babylon once claimed to be an eternal queen, which we see these echoes here in these verses, living luxuriously and sensuously. Rome, too, claimed to be an eternal city. Rome included the worship of the goddess Roma, who was the female personification of Rome. And so it was a means of propaganda and social control. And if you like to keep notes, you'll find uh, some notes in your bulletin where you can fill in the blank. And point one on those notes is this. Rome glorified herself. Rome glorified herself. The new Jerusalem has God's glory, as we'll soon be seeing. But Rome, Babylon, glorifies herself. There will be a day when the arrogant are humbled and the humble will be lifted up. Babylon will be burned, as uh, we saw briefly in previous sermons From chapter 17, judgment will come. And in verses 9 through 20, we find this mourning over Rome of the kings and merchants. See, in the book of Revelation, we get this vivid contrasting picture. And this is point two on your outline. On the one hand, the righteous followers of Jesus, that is, the 144,000, gather to glorify God in the New Jerusalem. While on the other hand, these kings and merchants gather to mourn over Rome. These worldly rulers lament because they had profited personally from Rome. They had received security and prosperity in their relationship with Rome. They are mourning, see, not just for Rome, but also for themselves. One scholar writes that the world's love is self-interested, not self-sacrificing. The longest lament here comes from the merchants who profited from Rome's trade. See, people were dazzled and enticed by the grandeur and wealth of Rome. It was hard not to see Rome as somehow blessed by the gods. She was mighty, wealthy, How was this not a blessing? You know, I uh, once was in a conversation with an important Bible scholar, and he asked me this question. Is America on the same path? And then he answered his own question with a sad yes. See, people were more committed to buying and selling than to resisting Rome's demands, even to accept their national religions See, it's just the cost of having to do business. It's the price one has to pay. I often hear leaders of some evangelical churches say some of the same things. See, these merchants weep because no one now buys their products, as we see in verse 11. The Jews were exempt from participating in the imperial cult, the worship of Rome and her gods but Christians kicked out of the synagogues had to participate or they lost their income. We saw some of this earlier in uh, the letters to the churches in our earlier chapters. See John is telling us that Christians no longer could participate in an unjust commercial network that was thoroughly saturated with idolatrous patriotism, the worship of Rome. Now, let's, uh, let's talk about some of the other descriptions and language here. The rich folks of Rome loved their silver and gold, and they flaunted them, which was mostly imported from Spain. The mines were worked by slaves who rarely lived longer than a few years in those mines. They imported precious stones, mostly from India, that was used in men's and women's jewelry. Pearls were highly valued, Most of them acquired from the Red Sea or the Persian Gulf in India. They imported fine linen from Asia Minor and Egypt, which often replaced wool. Purple, by the way, which is mentioned here, was the most valued as a significant sign of affluence, which was imported from Tyre. Scarlet cloth was a symbol of luxury. They imported silk from China through the northwest Indian ports and through Parthia. Citron wood, fascinatingly, is mentioned here, which came from North African coast from Cyrene. But the supply was depleted by uh, John's time of this writing of the Book of Revelation, so they had to travel to Morocco for this very rare wood. And tables made of citron wood were one of the most expensive fashions in Imperial Rome. In fact, uh, Some ancient histories indicate that the tables made of citron wood were sold for the same cost as a large mansion in those days. The ivory trade had nearly driven the Syrian elephant to extinction in John's time, and few elephants remained in North Africa. Rich Romans used it in table legs and to make idols. Other costly wood is referred to here, probably referring to maple, cedar, and cypress, all of which were used to make expensive luxury items. And the most famous bronze, which is mentioned here in the empire, was Corinthian bronze. The best iron was imported from the east. Romans imported marble from Africa, Egypt, and Greece, especially in use in palaces. Cinnamon, interestingly, is mentioned here. It came from Somalia in East Africa and was extremely expensive. Merchants would travel two-year journeys to Zanzibar and Tanzania to get it. Incense was used for religious rituals and to perfume wealthy homes. Myrrh was imported from Yemen and Somalia. Frankincense was a luxury item from the South Arabia. See, Rome got its best wine from Sicily and Spain, and in John's day, the empire experienced a grain shortage along with a wine surplus because the wine trade was more profitable than grain. Fine flour became a luxury good, the best being imported from Africa. Africa and Egypt supplied most of Rome's wheat through the imperial grain fleet and thousands of ships run by merchants but controlled by the state. And much of this wheat came from taxes on the provinces, but it was distributed freely to Rome's inhabitants So not just the rich, but the whole populace of Rome survived only at the expense of the rest of the empire. And that's a quote from one of the histories. See, the prostitute Rome rode on the beast of imperial power. Horses were imported from Africa and Spain. And John ends his list here in the Greek as literally they traded in the bodies and souls of men because in John's day, war didn't supply enough slaves, so they had to acquire them other ways. And many poor people in the empire discarded their babies that they felt that they couldn't raise, while many of them ended up being eaten by birds and dogs. Many were also rescued for slavery. After they had grown, Asia exported a large number of slaves to Rome through Ephesus. See, Babylon, Roman luxuries were often gained at the cost of oppression, enslavement, and the impoverishing of multitudes of people. See Rome was the new Babylon. but there were and have been successive Babylons and Romes throughout history. As I told you back when we were looking at chapter 13, they are the beast from the sea, the beast which kill is killed ends, but then comes back to life, recurring throughout history. One Greek commentator summarized the message of this chapter this way, those who profit from the sins of others share in their judgment. And so point three on your outline. God warns us, the 144,000, his people, those who follow the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, to come out of Babylon. This is a call to holiness. See, biblically, holiness is separation from the world to God. We are called to holiness, to be set apart, to be in the world, but not of the world. And we express that holiness when we're immersed in God's word and in prayer. But it's also we express that holiness when we turn down a better-paying job because we believe God wanted us to work among the poor. See, coming out of her also means repudiating her values publicly and visibly. It means taking stands that might mean lost income or lost jobs or reputation or friends. See, early Christians were often martyred for these kinds of stands that they have taken. At its height, the West Indies slave trade employed 5,500 sailors and 160 ships worth six million pounds of sterling a year. The slave trade was very profitable, but William Wilberforce and other evangelical Christians acting out of Christian conviction fought in Parliament until slavery was abolished throughout the British Empire, but how about today? Well, today, over one billion people subsist on the equivalent of less than one dollar a day. And matters are only getting worse. And today, the slave trade looks a little different, but it's even in our own backyards. You know, it was revealed just this last week that approximately 800,000 children go missing in the United States every year. And many of them end up in the hands of sex traffickers and slavers because it's a very profitable market. Are we immune from Babylon in the Western world? Well, you decide. See, the Bible addresses Christians and finances in many ways, all of which uh, I can't get into in one sermon, nor should I. But rather, this picture of the hoarding and greed and avarice of Babylon as end-time judgment of the nations, their nation's political systems and ideologies that are opposed to God and to his people, should be a sobering one to us as Christians in one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest nation that history has ever known. It should give us pause to consider the meaning of wealth and the acquiring of wealth. It should give us pause to question our own values, our own lusts and desires for stuff. It should give us pause to ask, where is it really that I am placing my treasures? Is it truly in heaven, or is it here on earth? Because I know that where my treasure is, there is my heart also. Statistics of Christian wealth and how much we spend on ourselves is statistically little different from non-Christians. Is there something wrong with this? I think so. You know, I've been just as guilty as anyone else of desiring more and more financial security, and accumulating more and more stuff, and I have to admit that when the newest iPhone was announced, I experienced great lust in my heart. this is point four, by the way, on your outline. Materialism is the crutch on which much of our society leans. And you and I aren't immune to it. God is so easily replaced as the center of worship with stuff. We're often consumed with satisfying our cravings and desires that with things that will be the future stuff of yard sales and garbage dumps. Think about that. Money and the love of money are very important issues, though they make us very uncomfortable here in America. See, in Revelation, this greed and lust for stuff is at the heart of Babylon. We're all guilty of this. And John's call here is for us to come out of her That's Jesus' call as well. To remember that our allegiance isn't to Babylon, but to the new Jerusalem. Our home is not Babylon, but the new Jerusalem. When we lose everything, our cars, houses, clothes, family members, especially our luxuries, we still have Jesus Christ. And so we still have everything. Please don't misunderstand me. I don't think it's wrong to have nice things, but I don't want to lust after them. I don't want to be consumed with the desire for them, and I don't want you or I to be controlled and directed by our desires for more and more money, more and more stuff, nicer cars, bigger homes. I want you and I to be consumed with the desire to draw closer to Christ and his word. I want our satisfaction to not be in stuff, that will soon be in landfills, but in Jesus Christ and His Word that nourishes and satisfies. I want our treasures not to be in this world, but in a new heaven. To be eternal in Christ. And building our treasures there means investing in the internal, in in making and being a disciple of Jesus Christ, in loving others to real life in Jesus, in investing in the lives of my non-Christian neighbors, friends, and family to the point that I can speak Christ's life, Christ's love into their lives in compelling ways. You know, Jesus taught a parable of a foolish rich man saying in Luke 12, verse 15, Then he said to them, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions and this is point 0.5 now on your right line i think i'm up to 5 materialism and consumerism both come from the sin of covetousness which the apostle paul directly equates with idolatry in ephesians 5:5 5, 5. let me read that to you for of this you can be sure no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Or as Jesus put it, no one can serve two, master, two masters, God or money. See, we live today in a time and place that is increasingly looking like Babylon, a world dominated by the profit motives of the wealthiest merchants of the global free market. It is the seductive and deceptive world system in which everything is turned into a commodity, even the bodies and souls of men, where kings and merchants grow rich off of profits from marketing the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Or as Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 3, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I often have told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. One scholar put the issue this way for the church, and this is point six on your outline, which is a quote. True sustained revival will never come to a church that remains blinded and seduced by the luxuries and deceptive propaganda promoted by heaven's greatest enemy, the great harlot of Babylon. Jesus says, come out of her, my people. Come out. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold on to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. And so I have to ask you, where are you investing? What is your attitude toward others and toward money? Whom are you serving with, with how you acquire your wealth and what you do with it? Are you serving others? Are you investing in God's kingdom? What really matters to you? Where is your treasure? How are you investing in eternity? Will your treasures eventually fill the landfills? Or are they stored in heaven? Is your allegiance to Babylon? Or the new Jerusalem? Let me also say this. Without generosity, you cannot become spiritually mature. Some of you think that statement is a bit strong or even wrong. But let me suggest, generosity is and always will be one of the genuine character traits of a follower of Jesus Christ. We have changed the standard of measurement of how people dress, sing, dance, shout, and operate in the gifts. But if you go back to the Bible, you discover that in Acts, the community around the church recognized the believers as followers of Christ by their generosity. It stood out in the society that they lived in. In fact, they marveled at the generosity of the church. The New Testament church had a culture of generosity that many of us have lost. Randy Alcorn said it like this, If Christ is not Lord over our money and possessions, and I would add our time and talent, then he is not our Lord. See, Jesus understood and made it very clear that where our treasures are, our hearts would follow. If he doesn't have those things, then he doesn't have your heart. He teaches us in Matthew 25 that we're each given an allotment of talents. That is the concept of money, time and abilities. And we are expected to develop those talents and then generously give back to the master. I have never seen a mature Christian who is also not a mature steward. Giving is a part of growing in Christ. Let me glo- close with just a personal illustration. Many uh, years back, uh, about twenty-seven years ago now, Lynn and I were involved in an inner city church and Denver, Colorado, called Open Door Fellowship. It was a combined church that came from two ministries, one that was working to reach the poor and homeless in Denver with the gospel of Jesus in tangible ways. And the other was a ministry that reached out to the disabled in Denver. They combined to form this vital church, which is still going strong today. I remember uh, talking to one of the pastors about the makeup of the church and how they received their support. He took me aside and told me that there were two members of the congregation who gave the bulk of their budget. They were men that earned a lot of money, but were entirely anonymous and lived very humble lives, and he told me that you could not pick them out in the congregation if you tried. They lived lived in very modest homes and old vehicles. He told me that one of those men once told him that when he earned $50,000 annually, he had learned to tithe, and so he was giving $5,000 to his church. But then, as his income grew substantially, he found himself still giving a tithe, but finding it more and more difficult to do so. Till one evening in prayer, he had a conversation with Jesus that went something like this. Lord, it's hard for me to give so much money now that I'm making so much. The Lord responded, were you ever in need when you were making 50,000 and giving five? He answered no. He then told him this, which he never forgot and reflected, and was also much more reflective of the New Testament mandate of sacrificial giving, not tithing. He said, if you lived on the $45,000 per year I provided you very comfortably while trusting me, why do you believe you should live on so much more now? He then responded to Jesus, by going back to living on the $45,000 a year annually, and giving away the other 95% of his income. My friends, life is not about the accumulation of stuff that will one day be in the landfills. We must learn to live life like Christ died yesterday, rose today, and will return tomorrow, as I've said many times. The urgency of the gospel must be our vision. Loving people to real life in Jesus must be our vision not the stuff that so burdens our lives. The man and his, that man and his friend, by the way, that had donated the vast majority of their earnings, realized what true stewardship really looks like, what true generosity really looks like in pursuit of the building of God's kingdom and reaching the lost, the broken, the lonely, the disabled, the poor, with the gospel. And I promise you, they have many, many treasures in heaven. The values of this world are the exact opposite. This is foolishness to the world, but true, eternal, everlasting wisdom. Let's pray together. Gracious God, this passage in Revelation 18 isn't an easy one. We live in a world that looks a whole lot like Babylon, a whole lot like Rome, but in John's day. And it's easy to become numb to that. It's easy to live like the world lives forget the calling to come out of her, to live humble lives, lives of generosity, lives that invest in eternal treasures, lives that invest into the lives of others. We need to know the gospel. Lord Jesus, Each and every one of us falls so far short of that calling. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray for your forgiveness and your empowerment that we might indeed respond to this calling upon our lives. I invite you now uh, to join with me in our corporate prayer of confession, which is in the inside back page of your bulletin. And as as we do so, I'm going to invite the elders and deacons who will be uh, uh, doing the communion to come on up here as as we uh, pray this prayer together. Please join with me. Merciful Lord, we confess that with us there is an abundance of sin, but in you there is the fullness of righteousness and abundance of mercy. We are spiritually poor, but you are rich, and in Jesus Christ came to be merciful to the poor. Strengthen our faith and trust in you. We are empty vessels that need to be filled. Fill us. We are weak in faith. Strengthen us. We are cold in love. Warm us. And make our hearts fervent for you, that our love may go out to one another and to our neighbors, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's just take a moment of silent confession together. Loving Father, when we look honestly into the mirror of your word, we realize how far short we have fallen. How much further we have to go. Lord Jesus, forgive us. Continue to bind our hearts to you. Continue to show us your abundant, abundant love that is wider than all our wanderings, that is deeper than the deepest ocean. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing love, your amazing forgiveness. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For on the night when Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. And in the same manner, he took the cup, saying this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. It represents the freedom and forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. And so as long as as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, You show forth the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, we come to your table empty-handed. We come to your table to receive, realizing that there is not one iota of a thing that we can add to our salvation, but it is your grace and your grace alone that we cling to, and grow in thank you lord for your amazing love It's in jesus name we pray amen and just as a reminder this is not a parkway table this is not a presbyterian table this is not an epc table this is the lord's table and so we invite all those who have come out of babylon to all those who have given their life to christ who have come to that place where they have given their life to him to come and join us in the table but if you have never come to that place, we also we invite you to let the elements pass by, but we don't want the moment you to let the moment pass by. I'd love to pray with you. I know our, our elders and deacons would love to pray with you. Our prayer warriors in the back would love to pray with you. And so uh, we ask that you not let this moment pass by. Now go out with these words from Second Timothy. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Go in His peace.